You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Eric Ritan is a philosophy professor at Oklahoma State University. He is the author of dozens of professional articles, several short stories, and three books. His book, which is most relevant for our discussion today, is his 2011 book, God's Final Victory, A Comparative Philosophical Case for Universalism, co-authored with John Cronin. Welcome, Eric Ritan, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, Eric, in Thomas Talbot's glowing recommendation for your book on the back cover, he notes that the final chapter of your book will be of great interest to the Christian community as a whole because it includes an easy-to-digest summary of the overall argument and also addresses the issue of evangelism as well as other practical Christian concerns. So I thought maybe we could start there. Would that be okay? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, well, that final chapter breaks down into six parts. The first part is called Summary of Our Argument. Your first sentence there is, Our aim in this work has been to systematically argue that within an essentially conservative Christian context, a doctrine of universal salvation is more defensible than a doctrine of an eternal hell. Could you just then rehearse briefly then your basic argument and why you thought it important to situate your argument within an essentially conservative Christian context? Yeah. So let me actually start with the the second part of that question. The you know why situate this within an essentially conservative uh, Christian context? Okay. Um, and um, uh, you know, one of the main reasons for that is that there seems to be this assumption among many uh, Christians who uh, think about or encounter universalism that um, that uh, universalism is the result of falling prey to the influence of uh, contemporary culture or, or something mm-hmm. uh, to that effect so that so that their allegiance to uh, you know core Christian teachings uh, has been diluted in some way by these contemporary secular influences. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and I think uh, it's important. I mean, that cannot explain why, you know, uh, Gregory of Nyssa say uh, was a universalist or other early church fathers who were universalists. Uh, it can't account for that, obviously, because they were not uh, susceptible to the influence of contemporary culture. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, and um, and I think there are, uh, you know, good, solid, important reasons um, in favor of um, of universalism that uh, flow out of the very heart of. Christian teaching. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think, you know, it's, it's uh, valuable to think about those reasons and to understand uh, how and why universalism needn't be construed as this uh, alien intrusion 
uh, or infection of the faith, but as an expression of the faith, right? So that, uh, so that's uh, the main reason. The other, I mean, related point is uh, has to do with these fears of slippery slopes, right? If we mm-hmm. give ground in this area, then inevitably we're going to have to um, give ground in all sorts of other areas. And um, and what I want to say to that is. Um, Every slippery slope uh, is a function, uh, well, a, a rational slippery slope where um, uh, you, you make the next move um, uh, because of the first move that you made. Um, in a rational slippery slope, your reasons for making this one change you discover are also reasons for making another change and and another change and another change, right? Um, But if the reasons for uh, changing what we think about uh, our eternal destinies um, is rooted in core Christian principles, right? The very heart of the faith, Mm -hmm. then uh, the only slippery slope we will have is a slippery slope towards greater and deeper allegiance to those core Christian principles, right? So any subsequent changes that we're inspired to make um, are going to flow from the same reasons we had for moving towards universalism, which is going to be a commitment to living out these, you know, core Christian principles. Um, So, yeah. Well, uh, I was just going to say that, some people have reacted to my Christian universalism as being really conservative because I, I went to a seminary at a um, Right Divinity School, which was uh, Christian Church Disciples of Christ related. And it was a lot of critical, it was encouraged a lot of critical thinking there. And some of my seminary colleagues and went on into ministry and, um, became pretty progressive in lots of different areas. And, and they look at my Christian universalism and they say, well, hold on, you know, you're saying that at the end of everything, there's going to be this final resolution where everybody is on board, you know, with Jesus mm-hmm. as being Lord and, and savior. And you're, you know, you're the way you're talking about all of this sounds, the language and the way you're using scripture and how you're talking about heaven and hell and all these things that sounds kind of evangelical, just the way that you're even constructing all of this. You, you seem like you're pretty conservative. And so what I sometimes tell people is if you're concerned that my Christian universalism is liberal, you should just know that it comes across as pretty darn conservative from the people that I know that consider themselves to be liberal. And really I can make an argument that what I'm doing is quite conservative because I'm using I'm using scripture in a very conventional kind of way. And I'm referring to early church fathers uh, who were certainly using scripture in very reverential kinds of, of, of ways. And I'm appealing to the, the Christology that came uh, that sort of the highest Christology based upon the text we can find in the new Testament to pull this whole thing together. So it's really a pretty conservative approach in lots of ways. It's just that the, the conclusion that I reach seems like it's some kind of liberal progressive conclusion, some somehow on, on your radar screen. 
Yeah. I mean, this is something that I found. Um, uh, when people look at my starting points, they think I'm a conservative. When they look at my conclusions, they think I'm a liberal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and this happens in a lot of, a lot of different areas. Um, but this is, um, you know, uh, you know, one of my main areas of interest is, is, is universalism. Um, but I think it's important, um, to sort of recognize that, I mean, everyone recognizes that someone who has very different starting points from a conservative Christian one, um, uh, could be a universalist, right? Uh, the, the interesting question is, is it consistent uh, with a, a more uh, traditional uh, Christian framework to be a universalist? And I think the mm -hmm. answer is yes. Yeah, that's, and, uh, that's, that's, that's been really helpful for, for many of the people who tune into this podcast are people who are coming out of more evangelical conservative backgrounds. And I guess what I'm saying to them is if you want to, you can pretty much keep everything in your conservative background, just, just rethink the, the doctrine of hell, but you don't have to give up uh, fidelity to scripture or you don't, you don't have to leave behind the historic Christian tradition in any way uh, that that's, you know, that's not required. And I think sometimes people are a little concerned that Christian universalism might lead to a rejection of the Trinity because of Unitarian universalism, they think, oh, well, if you go to Christian universalism, then the next stop is uh, you're going to maybe abandon the Trinitarian um, concept. Yeah. And I mean, these are totally separate issues. I mean, it's a matter of, you know, sort of American church history that this universalist church and this Unitarian church merged. Uh, to create Unitarian Universalism. Uh, but there's no necessary connection uh, between the arguments that, um, uh, that underwrite Universalism and the, and the uh, arguments that the Unitarians have for their rejection of the doctrine of the Trinity. Those are very separate uh, issues. And it's just, yeah, it's just a matter of a kind of accident of history that they ended up getting combined. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and they are very separable. Sort of okay. Could you just then rehearse briefly then your basic argument and um, for uh, Christian universalism? Yeah. So in its simplest form, what we do is we offer uh sort of three main reasons why God would save all and then identify um, sort of the, the, the two key sort of reasons why um, that might block God from saving all. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then we consider those reasons why God might, uh, that, that might block God from saving all um, and we find them not compelling, hence the reasons why God would save all, uh, go through, right? That's the basic structure. So, uh, we start out, you know, with this, what we call a prima facie or sort of on the face of it case for universalism, uh, based on God's benevolent love, God's complacent love, as we call it. And I'll tell you what that means in a minute and God's love for the blessed, um, 
God's benevolent love uh, is most obvious, right? God desires the good of God's creatures. It is good for God's creatures to be saved. Uh, therefore, God would um, would save uh, each and every creature uh, that is the object of God's benevolent love, unless there is something blocking God from doing so. Um, the other complacent love, um, that's a uh, that's the kind of love that values uh, something according to its worth. Now, um, here there is there's two sort of levels of complacent love. There's uh, God's complacent love for God. God values God according to God's worth, and God values creatures uh, according to their worth. Um, they, given that God created them with the image of God, they have a sacred worth that, um, uh, uh, that God being morally perfect would, uh, recognize and respond to, right? It's a, it's a reflection of God's infinite worth mm -hmm. in a finite form in the creature. And the yeah. So this is not, trans it's not, it's not a transactional type of thing where if you no. do something, then God will value you and love you. No, that's uh, that's right. It's not uh, the the. There's a difference between sort of honoring and responding to the inherent worth uh, that something has, and, or someone has, and their merit that they have as a result of their good works or or earning it or something like that. Mm -hmm. The idea isn't that that. Um, that creatures have a claim against God because of their merit or worth, but that they have a value uh, because of the kinds of beings God made them to be, right? And that value is is inherent to them. Um, and, uh, you know, the scriptural language is the image of God, right? It is within them. God created us with that the stamp of the divine image. And that uh, means that God imbued us with uh, an inherent worth in the very act of creating us. Mm -hmm. And God wouldn't, being morally perfect, God wouldn't imbue us with that worth and then behave as if we lacked it. Right. Uh, that would be, you know, unfitting for God. Yeah. Uh, right. So, uh, so God would treat us uh, in accord with that worth that God has pl uh, placed in us in the very act of creating us and, um, and uh, preserving us uh, uh, and actualizing the potential of our nature um, uh, would be, and uh, you know, the, the clearest ways to show respect for that worth. Right. So, so uh, our worth is, to the extent that God can uh, preserve uh, and uh, actualize the potential in our natures, God is uh, respecting that worth. Um, I was just going to yeah. just—I would just like to add that that kind of reminds me of the fifteenth chapter of Luke, where you've got the the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And what's surprising, what ends up being surprising, is just how valuable these end up being, because mm -hmm. you would think, well. What's one lost sheep? How valuable can that be? Or what's this one lost coin? How valuable can that be? 
Or what's this worthless son who's run off and disrespected his father and spent his inheritance and has come groveling back? You know, how valuable can any of these things be? And then what you find out is that there's the ex- extraordinary parties that are thrown for, mm-hmm. for each of them. And it's the, the reason that the party is being thrown is that something of extraordinary value has come back to the, to the one to whom it belongs. Exactly. Now, uh, on top of that, there's this other dimension to our complacent love thinking, which is that, um, and this is, you know, tied in, um, you know, Thomistic thought, and it finds earlier expression in Augustine. But the idea is that um, uh, our nature that God made us with finds its completion in union with God and in our moral sanctification, right? Uh, in, in Sin is a vitiation, a diminution, a reduction of what we essentially are. It's a twisting or a distortion of what God made us to be. Uh, God, in valuing what God made us to be, um, desires the end of that sinfulness, uh, the moral sanctification uh, that is a core constitutive element of salvation, right? Um, it's There's a kind of pop Christianity that sees salvation primarily in terms of bliss, happiness, feeling good, right? But uh, if you look at the tradition, it is virtue, it is being morally perfected, that is the essential gift of salvation, right? And, uh, well, and union with God, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but those two go hand in hand because we cannot come before God in a state of sin. So uh, uh, it is this moral sanctification that suits us for union with God that lies at the heart of salvation itself. And uh, that is what we're made for, right? Uh, Our natures are incomplete or actually diminished by sin. And to value um, what we are means desiring the elimination of sin which means desiring our salvation, which uh, has as one of its central components our moral sanctification. Yeah, I was just sense. thinking that this is going to become really important when you're thinking about your argument for free will, because if we, have, if we truly have a spiritual orientation, if, if, if we are created to go a certain direction, and that direction is towards the good that is essential to who we have been created to be. And if we're designed to experience fulfillment finally uh, in union with God, then to be free is finally to be able to realize that trajectory. And anything that then, that then holds us back from that is a kind of slavery or, or a kind of unfreedom. Mm-hmm. And I think that when I, when I really got that, it, it helped me to put everything together. And, and I, I hear a lot of echoes of that in what you're saying. Yeah, no. And we'll talk more about that uh, because that's one of the sort of arguments against, right? Uh, God yeah. saving all. 
uh, that we'll that we'll have to sort of take up. But before getting to that, the third sort of main um, reason that God has for saving all uh, that we talk about uh, that is underappreciated in, I think, the history of the tradition, uh, and I'm actually currently working on a book that focuses on this line of argument uh, specifically, um, God's love for the blessed. Uh, the basic idea is um, the blessed would uh, more, be morally perfected, right? At the heart of the Christian understanding of moral perfection is being perfected in love. Uh, if the blessed are perfected in love, um, they would have the kind of love that does not wait on worth, that extends to the enemy, um, uh, that is responsive to the need of that injured person on the Jericho Road. Um, and as such, it would extend to the uh, damned uh, who are both, uh, in a certain sense, the enemy of, uh, in the sense that they put themselves in opposition to the good, um, but they're also uh, in desperate need, right? So, so uh, the blessed would love the damned, right? And um, if they loved the damned, they couldn't but be pained by the fate of the damned. And that would then be a, uh, a diminishing of their happiness, right? And so for the sake of the blessed, God would not give up on the damned, right? So that's a, a sort of additional reason why mm -hmm. we should care about uh, the fate of the damned. Right, and I've, I've even thought that, um, that if I take this position of universal salvation, the, what I'm doing is essentially just taking up the same position of God, which is that God loves and God saves. And so if I'm, if I'm acting in the image of God, then I want to love and I want to save. So I guess the, I would want to have confidence that God, that all would finally be saved. If I was going to somehow enjoy some kind of heavenly state, I would have to have confidence that ultimately all would enjoy that same heavenly state. And if there was something necessary for me to do to help those to enjoy that heavenly state, then of course I would you know, I would do it, I, whatever part it is that I could to do this. I guess in a way, what I'm doing in this podcast is trying to help people to to know that um, that you can live as a Christian believing that this this ultimate outcome will come to pass. And you can also help other you can help other people right now. You know, it's mm -hmm. I'm sort of doing right now what I imagine might have to be done if there's some afterlife where some are still. Uh, beyond the pale some way. I would want to know, well, okay, sign me up. How can I be a part of, <laughs> is right. there something like that? I mean, do? universalism, Christian universalism does not, uh, I mean, some people have these caricatured views of it that, that somehow at death, everyone just immediately uh, enters heaven. Well, if, uh, if, if people are in a state of resistance to God at death, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, they're eternally damned. It could mean that that 
resistance needs to be worked on some more. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, and the question is, uh, is God, you know, resourceful enough that we should trust that, uh, that when God works on our resistance, that God won't fail. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, um, but we'll get, uh, (laughs) it's hard not to get ahead of more into that in terms of sort of, Again, my the main argument of the book we we give these main reasons why God would um, uh, uh, would desire the salvation of all God why God would seek the salvation of all, all if God could do so in a morally permissible way right mm-hmm. uh, now presumably God could do so right if God is omnipotent so the question is is there some moral impediment to God? Uh, saving all. And the, the two moral impediments in the tradition that have been identified and talked about uh, are justice and respect for freedom. And so a big chunk of the book is looking at each of these. Does justice preclude God saving all or does um, divine respect for creaturely freedom preclude God saving all? And our answer in both cases is no. And so, um, based on that, we uh, we then reach our final conclusion. Well, as you as you proceed through this introductory part of your last chapter, you describe the oldest and most pervasive version of the doctrine of eternal hell in the Western Church, which you call the classical doctrine of hell. So, could you expand on this and the problems you see with it? Yeah. So, the classical doctrine is the one that invokes justice, right? Uh, it's, uh, yeah, retributive justice. It's the retributive, uh, view, which holds that, um, uh, the damned are, uh, ultimately rejected by God, right? Uh, and punished with eternal suffering, uh, as a just punishment, uh, and a fitting punishment for their sin, right? So the the classical doctrine is why you know why are some people uh, damned because they deserve it because justice demands that they suffer eternally, mm-hmm. right? That that's uh, that's the classical doctrine, right? So so yeah, God would save all uh, for the reasons that we give if it weren't for the demands of justice, right? But justice is also something that God is beholden to, not just benevolent love and complacent love. Um, God is also motivated by justice, and justice calls for the uh, uh, eternal damnation of um, uh, of sinners, of mm-hmm. unrepentant sinners, right? So that that's... Uh, that's the idea, right? So um, there are lots of ways that one could go about critiquing this uh, traditional doctrine. Um, but uh, uh, the, what John and I do is we um, we grant the... Um, what what many find objectionable in this doctrine, the idea that human sinfulness 
calls for or um, warrants punishment of infinite, you know, duration, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, one could challenge that, right? One could say, well, you know, human beings in a finite lifetime, finite creatures that they are, uh, commit sins that are only of finite gravity. So how could an infinite punishment be proportional and be what justice demands? If it's not proportional and not what justice demands, it couldn't, um, it couldn't uh, be a basis for eternal damnation and therefore uh, for the doctrine of hell that precludes uh, the salvation of all. Um, but let's grant this. And, um, uh, you know, one, one important figure that granted this was uh, uh, St. Anselm. Um, and um, the basic idea uh, is that um, every human sin is a sin against God. Right, every human sin is a sin against mm -hmm. God. To sin against God is a sin against a being of infinite majesty. Right, uh, right. and to sin against a being of infinite majesty is to um, commit a sin of infinite gravity. Right, so the gravity which of which demands sin is a, then an infinite punishment. Right, so right. so the uh, the idea is that uh, the gravity of a of a of an offense is a function not only of, you know, whether it's murder or stealing, but also a function of the one against whom it is uh, directed, right? Right. Um, and uh, since sin is uh, against God, who is of infinite worth, sin has this infinite severity, gravity to it. And therefore, um, what is fitting or appropriate is a punishment of infinite severity. Um, but although Anselm uh, made that point, that point was a point Anselm made for the sake of, or as, as a, 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 a step in Anselm's case for the vicarious atonement, right? The, which has become the most influential account of the, um, the nature of Christ's atoning work, mm -hmm. right? Um, what Anselm basically said was human sin is infinitely grave and, and calls for infinite punishment. But plot twist there's no way human beings can uh, be subject to infinite punishment. Well, why not? Well, I mean, we're finite creatures. We can only endure so much. We can only endure a finite amount of punishment at any given time. Um, so, uh, well, what, and then stretch it on forever. Well, you'll never reach the end of that forever. So you'll never reach a point uh, where... Um, human being has uh, suffered infinitely uh, experienced an infinite punishment. You will never reach a point in which the demands of justice have been met. Right. Hmm. Uh, and so, so it's, 
so if if human sin deserves infinite punishment, then the demands of justice can't be met by punishing human beings, right? That's hmm. that's the conclusion that Ansel makes, right? Human sin deserves infinite punishment, but if we try to meet the demands of justice by inflicting infinite punishment on human beings, we'll fail. We can't do it. And so if we try to meet the demands of justice that way, the demands of justice will go eternally unmet. And God demands that justice be met, right? Mm-hmm. So God, God's very justice demands that he find an alternative way to meet the demands of justice, right? Mm-hmm. And that is where the vicarious atonement comes in, right? Uh, it's uh, because... God's justice must be satisfied and can't be satisfied through the punishment of creatures, even if it was eternal conscious torment. Um, the um, God must meet the demands of justice another way. What's the other way? The vicarious atonement. God becomes human or takes on human, becomes incarnate, takes on human form. God, uh, Christ is fully God and fully Man steps in and takes the punishment on humanity's behalf uh, and by virtue of being fully God is an offering of infinite worth that can meet in one fell swoop the demands of justice. The demands of justice have been met uh, through the vicarious atonement and um, the... um, uh, and justice is no longer impediment to the salvation of anyone, right? Uh, now, there are ways that Anselm's argument could break down at any point, where objections that could be raised at any point in that argument. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, anytime you object, you're basically um, uh, leaving the uh, the train. Uh, that uh, is taking you to uh, eternal damnation being justified um, uh, or being a demand of justice. And um, and if you stay on the train, you get to the demands of justice being satisfied in some other way. Uh, and... If the demands of justified are demands of justice are satisfied by uh, Christ's atonement, um, then uh, demands of justice can't be um, uh, can't be uh, the uh, justification for eternal damnation. Um, besides which, eternal damnation won't meet the demands of justice. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so eternal damnation won't meet the demands of justice. The vicarious atonement will and does, right? And so uh, justice, the demands of justice have been met and um, uh, can't explain eternal damnation, right? It can't explain it because it's insufficient, right? Eternal damnation is insufficient to meet demands of justice. Can't explain it uh, because it's unnecessary to meet the demands of justice given the vicarious atonement. Right. So that's, um, uh, I mean, there are other things we talk about in uh, in that chapter, for example, um, 
God find, I mean, the, the heart of the retributive idea is that sin is an intolerable affront to God. Um, but the doctrine of eternal damnation is uh, a doctrine which holds that uh, some people are eternally cut off from uh, God's grace. Uh, God's grace is a necessary for moral sanctification, for overcoming sin. And so the, uh, those who are eternally damned are eternally deprived of what they need in order to stop being uh, sinful. And so God responds to this intolerable affront uh, that is sin by ensuring that the sin never go away, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in effect, right? Uh, it doesn't make sense, right? If sin is an intolerable affront to God, uh, uh, how could God respond to it by saying, all right, that's it. Your sin is so bad that I'm going to punish you by making sure that there's no way you can stop being a sinner, right? Uh, that's how bad your sin is. I'm going to make sure that, that since I can't tolerate your sin, since it's mm-hmm. just so horrible, I'm going to make sure that it continues forever, right? Uh, that view of retributive justice, it really just does make sense when you begin to, um, you know, uh, unpack it. So there's just all kinds of problems with uh, trying to account for eternal damnation by an invocation of uh, justice. Now, that said... Um, there is this move that uh, you know is, would be f- f- very f- uh, fairly familiar among evangelicals, which is that um, the merit of Christ's atonement um, uh, needs to be appropriated right by the individual through uh, through a choice, right? And mm-hmm. if they don't appropriate it, then it's not applied to them, right? The forgiveness and is there; they just have to they just have to get it. Yeah. Yeah. And if they, if they don't, if they don't choose to get it, uh, then they are still, then, 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 uh, the vicarious atonement doesn't reach them. If it doesn't reach them, then they, the demands of justice haven't been met with respect to them and they need to be punished, uh, eternally, uh, as the alternative, right? Um, now, there's still a problem there, even if you buy into all of that, in that um, uh, there's still the problem of making sense of how them being punished eternally uh, is going to meet the demands of justice. It just it doesn't, right? It falls short. It's The, the demands of justice are never going to be met. Um, and, um, and so it would seem that if God really, really cares about justice, God's going to find some way to ensure that everyone uh, uh, embraces that vicarious atonement. Right. Mm -hmm. And, or that there's, you know, there's reasons to think that the vicarious atonement, the the logic of the vicarious atonement doesn't depend on subjective appropriation, that it's only the enjoyment of the benefits of vicarious atonement, atonement that would depend on subjective appropriation. Yeah, it would seem like it's uh, either there, or it's either there, or it's not there. Right. Yeah, it would seem that if if the vicarious atonement is going to make any sense at all, then it met the demands of justice. Period. Right. Right. And so this leads to the you know there's there's this 
one Lutheran idea um, um, that I forget who it was, but um, uh, it was a 19th century Lutheran theologian who used this uh, uh, this analogy. You know, suppose the king. Um, um, on account of something that the king's son has done, um, exonerates everyone in the dungeon mm-hmm. and declares all of them uh, free and sends people down into the dungeons to unlock all the doors and swing them wide and say, you're free to go. Your pen- punishment has been rescinded. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, all of this, right? So, uh, that's in effect what the vicarious atonement achieves, right? But uh, you still have to walk out the door, right? Uh, if you if you sit in the cell forever, it's, you're still going to be suffering uh, as badly as if you hadn't been forgiven, right? Right. So, um, so in other words, this leads us to this other version of the doctrine of hell, where it is uh, the free choice uh, of uh, of the creature uh, that uh, prevents them from uh, being saved. Is this right? what you call the liberal doctrine of hell in the book? Yeah, and that's what that's what we yeah we call it the liberal doctrine. Liberal, not in the sense of you know contemporary politics, but liberal in the sense of um, you know the uh, Latin term for freedom. Right, it's a freedom-based um, uh, doctrine of hell. It's the it's the version of the doctrine of hell that um, C.S. Lewis, uh, you know, dramatizes in *The Great Divorce* and elsewhere. Uh, he's you know he says you know the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Mm-hmm. Right? Sort of capture it that um, that God has you know extended this grace to all uh uh all we have to do is reach out and take god's hand right um but uh it's uh on this view of things it's important i mean there that you know that heaven is about this relationship of mutual love and god isn't going to force that on anyone right so god uh, creates us with this free will that enables us to uh, accept or reject. If we uh, accept, then uh, we're saved. Um, God's grace floods us. We're sanctified. We are, you know, we experience the wonder of the beatific vision. We're just full of joy mm-hmm. and. and uh, uh, in community with one another, with one another, the other blessed in heaven and with God. Right? If we reject, then we have rejected the source of all good. Right? And right. if we've rejected the source of all good, uh, this the, what naturally follows from this is an existence deprived of everything that makes existence worth having, which is going to be a miserable state. Right? And so the liberal doctrine doesn't view hell as a punishment, but as a sort of the natural consequence of rejecting God and by implication, the good. Right? Mm-hmm. So the liberal doctrine says, 
Um, it's, it's not about punishment. It's not about justice. Uh, hell is just the state of being an alienation from God and hence from the good. And, uh, and that's going to be terrible, a terrible state. Um, and, um, and uh, whether you're in that state or not depends on your free choice. Right. So that's, uh, that's the liberal doctrine. And, um, in a, you know, in, in its simplest terms, um, well, I like to use the following analogy to explain why I find the liberal doctrine problematic. Okay. According to, um, you know, this liberal doctrine, you have this choice between accepting God's grace uh, or rejecting it. If you accept God's grace, you will have all good things uh, beyond good, beyond what you can fathom, mm -hmm. right? If you reject it, you reject everything that makes life meaningful and you exist in, a, in an awful state. So why would someone reject it, right? Uh, well, you could imagine someone rejecting it because they don't know, right? They're ignorant. Right? Mm -hmm. they, they, they misunderstand what accepting it means or they misunderstand what rejecting it means. So it's based on some, uh, some ignorance. Um, or they might reject it because they are not really free. They're controlled by sort of addictive you know, personality traits that, that don't let them accept it, even though they recognize that it would be much better for them if they did. Right. Like the, uh, the smoker who no recognizes it would be much better to quit. Right? right. Much better for my health, much better for my life, uh, for my longevity, for my feeling of well being. I just can't Right? They're hooked. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we can, so we can imagine that either they're, in bondage of some sort, or they're ignorant, right? Um, if a choice is made in bondage or ignorance, it, is it really a free choice, right? Um, There's the Thomas question. Thomas Talbot's uh, argument is based on, and, and it's, I think, a modern formulation of uh, a view of freedom that is Thomistic, that is applied that, you know, the same Thomas Aquinas's view of freedom is the one that um, uh, Talbot is using. And that's what John and I argue that it's, that it's basically uh, Aquinas's view of freedom that Talbot uses. And basically Talbot says that the way that God can guarantee the salvation of all is by guaranteeing that everyone's choice is truly free. Right. So, uh, Freedom, rather than being an impediment uh, to salvation, uh, is the guarantor of it, right? Genuine freedom. Because if you're genuinely free to make this choice, you will not be ignorant of what you're choosing. You'll understand the options um, and you won't be controlled by, you know, sin or other forces that get in the way of making uh, making free choices. And if... if uh, if you're in that situation, it's sort of like this is where all getting to my analogy. Suppose I went to a restaurant and I sat down and I was given a menu and it was a very special restaurant. It had two options on the menu. Um, the one option was um, 
my very favorite meal um, and uh, prepared by the greatest chef who's ever lived mm -hmm. uh, using the freshest and most humanely sourced ingredients possible, <laughs> right? So, yeah. so I, there's zero moral objections that I could possibly have to the food because it's as humanely sourced as conceivable. Right. Uh, it's my favorite kind of food. It's my favorite meal prepared by the greatest chef who's ever lived, right? So that's the one option, right? My mouth mm -hmm. is watering even as I look at it. The other option is... Um, uh, uh, cold dog diarrhea uh, that has been consumed by the dog and regurgitated before being uh, uh, scraped up and slapped on the plate. Right. Now, okay. let's suppose I genuinely believe, I, I correctly and uh, believe that if I order the, the diarrhea vomit, that's what I'm going to get. And it's going to be awful. And I'm going to be gagging, right? Uh, <laughs> and mm -hmm. each bite, and it's going to be a horrible experience. And I genuinely believe everything and correctly about this other option, that the chef really is that good, that the mm -hmm. sources really are that fresh and that humanely raised and all of this. Um, can you imagine what would motivate someone to choose the diarrhea vomit? Well, they would have to be in a state of um, um, insanity. They mm -hmm. would they would be out of their mind. They would be under the gr under the grip of some kind of delusion of mind that was making them think somehow that that is good. Exactly. I mean, it would it would be they, they would choose that only if they're insane. Now, is someone who is insane free? <laughs> right, right. Uh, I would say no. Right, uh, they're not. And um, now, of course, the choice between uh, you know eternal blessedness and and hell is, I mean, you know, take that that right. wonderful meal times a million, and you're mm -hmm. now a fraction of the way towards how good heaven <laughs> is. Right, and take the diarrhea vomit. Uh, times a million, and you're a fraction of the way towards how bad hell is, right? You know? Right. Um, right. So you would have to be completely, infinitely <laughs> insane, right, to, yeah. to choose hell over heaven. If it were, if if uh, you can't imagine that someone who is um, in their right minds, capable of a genuinely free, autonomous choice, would make such a choice. Well, and I think um, that that's where the the whole libertarian, the argument of libertarian free will, falls apart. There, at just that moment, at that eschatological horizon, and everything is made known. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, there's um, now there is a, a an objection to this, which motivates our kind of uh, we have a secondary a, a sort of a second argument. Um, relating to freedom um, because um, Jerry Walls uh, at some points uh, he concedes that Talbot is right 
that if someone authentically knew what they were choosing uh, between, Mm -hmm. they would inevitably choose union with God, acceptance of God's grace. Um, uh, He concedes that, um, but he then says, uh, well, maybe their ignorance is a self-imposed, right? They have deceived themselves, right? Um, Now, I'm not going to get into that argument because I've attacked it in uh, print and and I think it leads to this this infinite regress. Um, But, uh, so I don't think it works, but there's a a variant on what uh, Walls does that's better, which is, in effect, saying that the state in which you know really perfectly clearly what heaven means and what hell means, what union with God and alienation from God mean, that state just is the state of salvation itself, in effect. That, um, and that if you want someone to be free to choose salvation, um, the only option is some state of freedom that falls short of perfect knowledge. Um, so, so the idea here is that um, there's got to be some next best freedom that's worth having in some sense uh, uh, that uh, God would want to uh, let our salvation hinge on. Sort of a third uh, choice. Huh? Well, there needs to be an, another choice here on the menu. Right. Well, or or it it's it's got to be the case that um that uh the uh, the options on the menu are less clear. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh in order for it for, for it to be up to me, right? Because my nature is such that if the choices on the menu are clear, I'm just going to go with this one, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, for Walls, that being in that position just means or being saved, right? So you're already in a right relationship with God. You're already uh, when you know these things, and um, and so uh, it's got to be the case that the choices are unclear. So you can imagine uh, that it would, um, that God wants us to be able to choose. And so God makes the menu items fuzzier, right? So he uses some, you know, legalese language and some flor- flowery language to make the diary of Amit sound better than it actually is. You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> Right, etc. You can imagine something along those lines, but but we've, we're we're in a place, a, a, an epistemic place, where uh, the truth uh, is less clear, and it's from that place that that we need to make the choice, um, and uh, from that place, it's not guaranteed uh, that we will uh, choose union with God rather than alienation. Now, here's where. Um, 
I think, all right, let's 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 just grant that. Okay, let's suppose that that's the case, that there is this, that, that, um, that the state that we have to be in in order for it to be clear that union with God is infinitely preferable to alienation from God just is the state of union with God. And so in order to, for it to be the case that we choose union with God, it has to be from a place uh, that isn't where, where we don't have clarity um, and where there therefore isn't this certainty. Still, God has some, if, even if we grant that, God would have something in the divine arsenal uh, that, um, that I think would guarantee the salvation of all. And that is infinite opportunity and infinite resources. Um, so let's suppose that God can't just bring us to this state of complete understanding um, without our voluntary participation. Mm-hmm. So God might let us uh, be in this state of self-imposed darkness um, uh, and experience what it's like. Mm-hmm. And then say, you know, um, there's a better option. <laughs> yeah. um, and and uh, imagine that that someone experiences what it's like to continue to exist in alienation from God, it's going to get increasingly clear uh, how bad that option is, right? Right. Um, and, and we've got an infinite God on the case who is, um, even if God isn't, you know, interfering with this next best freedom, God is, you know, the best possible therapist in the universe, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, uh, and, uh, and so, you know, whatever in psychological problems are, are at work in explaining why uh, this person isn't cooperating and is enduring this miserable state um uh there's no one conceivably better at helping that person work through those problems than <laughs> right yeah uh, and god doesn't have a year or 10 years or a hundred years or a thousand years or a million years to convince this person god has eternity right, right. To, to work with this person uh so you're going to have between the direct experience of the undesirability of what they've chosen. And, uh, you know, we're going to have that on one end and we're going to have God's infinite resourcefulness and wisdom uh, and patience and love uh, and compassion and responsiveness and empathy and understanding of this person's situation uh, working. um, And, um under those conditions with infinite opportunity the salvation of all um well I actually argue it's a mathematical certainty 
Yeah. That's uh, an interesting argument in your book. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, that's, those are the main, you know, the main arguments of the book. Well, I can right. think of something that, that occurred to me that there would, there would also, I could raise an objection to that, mm-hmm. um, that if God is in fact, all knowing, uh, then God would know whether or not God was going to be able to successful uh, with this person. So that God is not entering into the therapeutic relationship wondering, gee, I wonder if I'm actually ever going to be successful here. Uh, mm-hmm. That God knows the end from the beginning and then is able to know, therefore, that God will be able to finally therapeutically uh, help liberate that person so that they can experience all the goodness that they were created for. Mm-hmm. And then if that's the case, then why would God make a creation in which God knew in advance that God would fail to be able to rescue the very people that it seems God wants to rescue? So why would you throw somebody into an unrecoverable situation if you love them and you didn't want that to happen? So that's another thing that sort of that to me, it was working through the foreknowledge, the foreknowledge of God. Why would God embark upon something that, why would God even embark upon something if God knew that it was going to be futile? Yeah. And, uh, related to that, uh, is, you know, I talked earlier about the divine image, right? Uh, uh, scripture uh, teaches that we are created, uh, in the divine image. Um, we are made by God for union with God, with the stamp of the creator in, embedded in our very nature, right? So there is a sense in which we are by nature designed by God for union with God. Um, what this means is that there is an inherent instability in rejection of God. Um, when we reject God, we are acting contrary to our own nature, right? So there's yeah, a we're kind rejecting of, ourself. Yeah, there's a kind of friction uh, created by that uh, by that move, right? Uh, there's uh, and and it's inherently just unstable because we're yeah. acting contrary to our very nature sometimes the way the way i put it is uh the more you go against the grain of the 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 grain of the universe the more splinters you get Mm -hmm. just the more uncomfortable it becomes yeah and as soon as you orient yourself in um in tune with your nature um things flow much more you know immediately and naturally and smoothly there isn't um uh, you know, it isn't a struggle anymore to this sustain initial, Yeah, this initially right. concerned me a little bit. I didn't grow up around Christianity, and they they kept talking about that you'll be a you know you'll be a new person, you'll be a you know re, you know this new creation. And so I had this idea that if I accepted Jesus into my life, that the first thing He was going to do was kill me, and then <laughs> replace me with somebody else that wasn't me. And that really kind of disturbed me for a long time, the way that language, I would just wasn't sure that I thought that Jesus was going to come in and erase me and mm-hmm. then, and then make a new David so that the person that was saved was not going to be me. It's going to be some, somebody different. And 
so when I was able to get the idea that no, what's what's happening here is that uh, you're not being made into who you aren't. You're being made into who you are. Mm-hmm. And that was very helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I was having a discussion the other day with a philosopher, a Christian philosopher, who didn't know if he was finally persuaded uh, about Christian universalism because his what he said was, if it's all going to be good in the end, Mm-hmm. and God knew that from the beginning, then why not just make us that way? Why take us through Auschwitz? Why why Auschwitz? If if God knows it's all going to be good, then why take us then then why take us? And and in section six of your I'm getting I'm getting uh, a little ahead of myself, but this seems like a, such an important question because it's in in section six of your last chapter, that's where you get into the problem of evil. And you say that it's probably the most pressing one. And the the people that I run into that I consider to be the most intelligent that have an objection to my Christian universalism raise this one specifically. And it's the, and it's the summarized in the terms of a question, if all are eventually saved, then why, why do we not all just start out this way? Why drag us, why drag humanity through all of this Auschwitz and terrible things that happen if we're all going to be saved and we're all finally going to be enlightened? Yeah, so um, I think this is one of, yeah, I think it's one of the most um, weighty questions uh, for more thoughtful critics of, of universalism. Uh, that said, um, it is a, um, it is really um, the problem of evil, right, a, um, attached to the doctrine of universalism, right? So, um, you know, the, the basic problem of evil is, you know, why would a perfectly uh, good and all-powerful God permit the evils of the world, right? Uh, this is why would a uh, perfectly good and all-powerful God permit the evils of the world uh, if ultimately all those evils are going to be redeemed? Mm-hmm. Um, well, notice when I formulate it that way, it seems if all the evils of the world are going to be redeemed, it becomes easier to make sense of why a perfectly good and all-powerful God would permit them in the first place than if they're not all going to be redeemed, right? If they're not all going to be redeemed, then I think the problem of evil becomes just this monumental problem, right? Uh, But if they're all going to be redeemed, you still have a problem, right? Why does he permit it in the first place, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, But it's not as big of a problem because it's all going to be redeemed in the end, right? Right. Uh, It's easier. It's an easier problem, not a harder problem on universalism. That's the first point I want to make. So that at least initially, the scope of the problem of evil is bigger on non-universalism than it is on universalism. Um, so that's the first point I want to make. Yeah, I've heard um, it put this way, that universalism isn't necessarily a theodicy, but it does reduce the problem of theodicy to a potentially manageable scope. Right, yeah. I think that's, that's a nice way to put it. Um, with that said, it's possible that 
those who raise this question, right, um, are thinking that the only solution to the problem of evil uh, lies in a particular theodicy that is incompatible with universalism, right? Uh, and that's why they're, uh, they confront this problem. Um, so they're, they're thinking that, well, why would a good God permit the evils of the world? Um, well, and they, they come up with an explanation. It's a way to separate the, uh, you know, the saved from the damned, right? The wheat from the chaff. Uh, right. Uh, it's it it's a it's a testing ground for seeing who gets into heaven, right? Uh, that's what explains the uh, the evils of the world. And if you turn to an explanation like that, um, well, universalism doesn't fit with that explanation, right? So so there's a particular way of trying to deal with the problem of evil that someone might think is the only good way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and, uh, but it's a way that, uh, presupposes a doctrine of hell and, or, or, or non-universalist. And that it's uh, somehow some, some sort of necessary risk that God has to make to enter the venture of creation. Yeah. Something like that. Um, but I mean, the, what I want to say is that if you think that a non-universalist or a, a theodicy incompatible with universalism is the only theodicy that could possibly explain uh, God's permitting evil, uh, your theological imagination might uh, justifiably call for some uh broadening uh, <laughs> and and, um, uh, uh, and uh, it, it doesn't take a lot of reading in the, the literature of, of, of theodicy uh, to encounter theodicies that are every bit as plausible as ones incompatible with universalism that um, that uh, nevertheless are, you know, at least as good as those. Well, one, one of the one of the questions that I've had is is why, if somebody is really well well educated and very intelligent and knows all of the you know they they've studied philosophy they've got they they know all the ins and outs of all the biblical arguments the scripture arguments they know the history I've kind of thought that the only reason that somebody would fail to come to this conclusion is if they had if they just didn't understand, there was some part of the picture that they didn't see, but how could anybody see the whole picture and not come to this conclusion in your, and in your uh, book, you, you dedicate it to your parents and you provide a quote from Martin Luther, which is mm-hmm. if I were to paint God, I would so portray him that in the very depths of his divine nature, there would be nothing else than a fire and passion, which is called love for people. Correspondingly, love is precisely that thing, which is neither human nor angelic, but divine, yea, God himself. So so why is it that Luther could have seen so clearly the love of God, and maybe I can extend this to others, 
but not be able to see their way clear through to the assertion that God's love would finally lead to the ultimate salvation of all. Yeah. Um, it's, it's tough. I mean, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, I am a Lutheran um, and um, I've read quite a bit of Lutheran theology and so much of it is like on the verge of being <laughs> universalist. Mm-hmm. Right? So I, I mean, I call myself a Lutheran universalist um, and I just think it's um, taking Lutheran theology to its, to its natural uh, implications uh, but, um, but historically most Lutheran theolo- theologians and Luther himself did not make that final step. Mm-hmm. Um, why? Um, I mean, yeah, I think, you know, part of it is going to be historical and cultural. And, um, if, you're immersed in an environment where that just isn't even a possibility, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just not something that's on your radar screen. Um, uh, I think that's probably why Luther didn't go there, right? It just wasn't even on his radar screen. Mm-hmm. He wasn't even sort of conscious of it. Um, well, in the mod- and in the modern environment I've had, I've had people tell me that they would like to embrace it, but they've got some, they're teaching in a place where if they do, they could lose their position. So that there's a lot of structural institutional reasons that people that are in seminaries that are connected um, to some type of confession of the Christian faith that has a doctrine of hell kind of baked into it. They may even, they may through the course of their journey, in studies come to a universalist conclusion, but then they don't feel like they can express it because they got a family to support. You know, they got all those types of things, which is why it's interesting to me that it's much easier for people to consider these kinds of things in religious studies department, religious studies departments or philosophy departments than it often is in places where theology is being studied, especially in some kind of confessional form connected with the church of some kind. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, I've, I've encountered similar things, right. That, that if you, uh, uh, if you're in that kind of context, if you're clergy or, uh, religion faculty at a seminary or a religiously affiliated, uh, school, uh, your job is on the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you, if you um, start coming out publicly as a universalist. And um, in Luther's case, um, now sometimes um, uh, if your job is on the line, you might you know, hit that point where you really are on the verge of being a universalist, but your job is on the line. So you won't let yourself take that final step, right? Mm-hmm. You won't admit to yourself that you're really a universalist, but it's also possible that, that it's going to stop you further back, right? In your journey that you see this, this path, right? And 
the costs of that path are just too great to tread, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, personally, so you don't, so you don't even start down that path. Um, and I think that's what's sort of more likely going on if you're, you know, talking about, you know, the Reformation era, uh, Europe, um, and uh, and someone who um, is leading. Uh, this reformation, right? Who's, who is, who is pitting himself against the powers that be. Um, uh, And if he were to add to the, you know, revolutionary sort of theological revisioning that, that he was engaged in, um, uh, this universalist piece, it would have fallen apart, right? I mean, he wouldn't have been able to to inspire the the kind of uh, uh, reformation yeah. uh, energy. They there just wouldn't be. It, it would be too alien an idea. Uh, he would put himself too far outside the stream of thought that the reforms that were at the heart of, of, of his movement would have uh, been, would have collapsed along, you know, along the way as well. And so um, you may be in a position where you see this pathway going down there and you also see what it would mean for all sorts of other things that you care about. And so you don't even start down that path, right? You don't even start down that path because the costs, the personal costs or the costs for for um, things you care about uh, are too high. Well, and just uh, in my case, um, you know, I talked with a uh, I talked with a very progressive Presbyterian minister one time and uh, I said, as a Presbyterian, can you affirm that God sincerely desires the salvation of all? And he said, well. A lot of us are getting there, but we can't really affirm that outright, you know, right now. And that was because of some things that are in the background of his theological tradition. Well, then you can go to the, you know, to the, to the Methodist minister and you can say, well, um, do you, do you believe that God ultimately gets what God desires? And, And they can say, well, Maybe, you know, we believe that God desires to save all, but we can't say that God will ultimately get that, you know. So they're, they're sort of bound all different kinds of ways. And I was an interesting thing about the I've interviewed, I've interviewed Lars Sandbeck, who teaches in Denmark at the state theological school there. And that's a Lutheran state. The state church is Lutheran there. And in my interview with him, he argues that that Calvin was. I mean, that Luther was essentially Calvinistic in his understanding of grace. But then later on, as the Lutheranism develops, there are some statements within Lutheranism that actually state that God does want the salvation of all. So you've got, you've got the seeds. You've got on Luther's side that grace saves alone. And you've got some other later Lutheran confessional statements, which seem to suggest that God wants the salvation of all. So he's arguing that you can put together a legitimate uh, Lutheran uh, Christian universalism, if you just take all of the, the tradition and put it together, 
And yeah. I was in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, and we didn't have one theological statement that everybody had to agree to. So there was nothing, there was no theological roadblock that was ever put in front of me saying, oh, well, you can't consider that. Uh, but it was just unusual um, for, in most, most Christian seminaries and denominations and churches already have enough roadblocks set up historically that it's really hard for people to escape that and still keep their jobs or get to still function in those environments. Yeah. No, and I, I think that's right. And I think you're right about uh, Lutheran theology as well. And the quote from Luther that uh, we have at uh, front of our book um, really is, you know, points in the direction of God desiring the salvation of all, right? And, you know, God has this burning love called love for people, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, uh, you know, it's at the very center of the divine uh, character uh, to pair that vision of God with a vision of uh, um, uh, a salvific um, project that is limited in scope, right? Right. Uh, is is hard. It's hard to fathom, right? It's hard to see how that those two things go together. And so then, if you have also um, that we are saved by grace alone, right? And and uh, uh, then you're heading very clearly in the direction of uh, of uh, universalism. Now, some later theologians. We're trying to sort of um, chart a course between uh, sort of the Calvinist view of how we are saved um, and um, a more Pelagian view. They were trying to... Yeah, I call it Arminian uh, just for short. Yeah, right, yeah. Uh, They're trying to steer a course between yeah, Arminianism and, and Calvinism. And um, they wanted with the Calvinists to affirm that if you're saved, it's entirely thanks to God. It's not uh, have anything to do with you. Uh, yeah. They wanted with the Armenians to say, if you're not saved, it's your own doing and it's got nothing to do with God. Um, and if so, you're saved, if you're saved, it's all of God. If you're lost, it's all of you. Right. And, <laughs> and the way they try to do that is they, they, basically have this idea that the way it works uh here's an analogy is if you're saved it's because you got the sickness god pries open your mouth inserts in your mouth a spoonful of medicine that will cure you deposits the medicine on your tongue um and um and then closes your mouth and if you do nothing, right, if you do nothing at all, then that you don't even swallow. Then the medicine will dissolve in your mouth and will enter your bloodstream and you'll be saved. Right. So if you're saved, it's all God. You've done nothing. Right. But if you're damned, it's because you actively spat it out. Right. So that was that was sort of their uh, their way of 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 trying to. Yeah. thread that needle or, or yeah the funny thing about it is all, all you have to do is say oh if god has foreknowledge 
Well, then God knows if you're going to spit it out. I mean. <laughs> right. And then, you know, presumably God could uh, devise a creative uh, plan in which God foreknows that only those who. Well, it seems uh, it seems to me that the, that the greatest energy, that the greatest sort of energy of and use of Christian intellectual power in Western Christendom has been trying to explain how God can be good, but at the same time not bring the creation to a good conclusion. And and since they were prevented from affirming an outright universalism, they had to use their genius in order to construct elaborate um, rationales for how this could possibly fail to come to pass. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I have very similar, very similar sentiments. It, it takes a lot of intellectual labor, um, uh, to reconcile, um, uh, God's character and power, you know, the, the Christian conception of God with a, doctrine of limited salvation. Um, I would say uh, the other thing about this, you know, Lutheran you know, medicine analogy, mm-hmm. um, we can imagine someone spitting out the medicine once, but again, this is the sort of infinite opportunity. Oh yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> would God just say, Oh, well, all done and walk away. If you're, if you're ill and the only cure is the medicine and you spit it out, would God say, well, that's the end of the story. Uh, or would God say, now, you know, that was medicine. For this illness, right. Uh, and, and say, you know, I'll let you experience that illness for a little while. Right. Yeah. And, and feel how bad it is. And I'm coming back in a little bit with some more medicine and then, you know, God does it again. And, and God's never, never going to stop. Right. Providing that medicine. Right. Yeah. Uh, so if you have infinite opportunity, then even well, okay. on that portrait, well, it's hard. To maybe, maybe we, as we're kind of winding up, this would be, a, we could talk about uh, some people have said, well, going along with that analogy. So God never gives up, but finally the person just gets so sick that they die which is kind of the annihilation argument. So God never stops trying, but in rejecting God's goodness, the sickness finally overcomes them and they are reduced to nothingness or some kind of, I think N.T. Wright says they, they descend and then become some kind of post-human creature for whom neither God nor their parents could any longer have sympathy. Yeah. So they, yeah, they're, they're reduced to something that's, I, I mean, the person ceases to exist, right? Right. So, um, um, yeah, I've, you know, heard that argument in various forms and in various ways. Um, our existence, you know, as the kind of being that we are uh, on the traditional doctrine of um, creation, creation, the act of creation, the act of sustaining someone in being are the same act, right? The same divine act, 
right? So that we are preserved in being at every moment um, through the same act that brings us into being initially. Uh, on that view, I'm living and moving. I'm living and moving and having my being in God. Right. Yeah. Uh, on that view, it's hard to imagine that uh, I could through my own actions, deprive myself of being um, uh, or cease to be the kind of thing that I am. It seems that um, it would only be if God removed that sustaining power, right, that gives me my being, that uh, I would cease to be, right, on that on that traditional view, which I find compelling. Um, so, um, so on that understanding of things, this, uh, this idea that we would eventually so degrade ourselves um, that we would cease to be or cease to be what, uh, persons, um, that would require some divine cooperation, it seems to me. Uh, and why would God cooperate with that? Why would, mm -hmm. if, if that was my project, God, why would God cooperate with that project? Uh, of me making myself something less than what God made me to be. Well, we've been going for a good while now, and, and uh, I think we've covered uh, enough for people to get an idea kind of about your, about your book and, the, and the, the comparative philosophical case that you're making for universalism. Maybe I'll just sort of close with the final question, having to, you know, your book has been out for 10 years now. And what kind of responses have you had to it? And have there been any further considerations or observations that you would like to make with regard to Christian universalism now? I think you hinted that you've got another book that you're working on, and that kind of gives me an idea what your future, what you're working on right now. But yeah. how has the response been to it? And are there, uh, yeah, how are well, the responses I, been? I like to think that, uh, uh, I mean, I've only, you know, I don't have a, a complete picture of, you know, how everyone who's read it has responded to it. But my sense is that people who have read this book think it is a very comprehensive case for universalism and is, is kind of the, the philosophical case that uh, non-universalists need to get past, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, I mean, that said, it's far from being the most popular, uh, in part because it's, you know, an academic book. It's, it's uh, you know, bristling with arguments uh, and, um, and it was, you know, originally, I think maybe you can get it, you know, paperback for a reasonable price now, but it's still, you know, priced the way that academic books are priced with library sales being what they're primarily targeting. Um, so, so I don't know that it, it's gotten, you know, as the kind of wide distribution that it probably, uh, that, that I think it, it would be good and nice to see, mm -hmm. you know, David Bentley Hart's book is much more widely read. Uh, you know, there are other books that are much more widely read. Um, but, um, uh, I like to think that philosophers writing on this topic 
have read our book, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I, I get the impression that that's the case. So that uh, so that it is now sort of one of those texts that if you're a philosopher writing about this issue, you're going to engage with and grapple with. Do you see that more um, philosophers are writing and grappling with this issue? Um, yeah. Um, I mean, that's a good question. Um, yes. Uh, in a, in a sense, um, it's, but I'm, I mean, certainly more than a hundred years ago, but I'm, more than like 15 years ago, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I, I think there was this, this in the nineties and early two thousands, this wave of, of, of philosophical interest that I'm not sure the topic presently enjoys okay. quite the same way. But I mean, these are, you know, like, um, like it comes you know, in like waves, global, like global warming, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. There's going to be uh, uh, there's the overall trend, and then there's ups and downs in terms of of yeah uh, temperature. Well, I think the, my impression is that since David Bentley Hart's book has come out, that it's kind of made the the case for this much more unavoidable. And so mm-hmm. then that background resources such as yours will be implored more as people who are trying to work through some of the philosophical issues that David Bentley Hart raises. So that will get people uh, more towards your book and more towards somebody like Thomas Talbot. And um, mm-hmm. um, Andrew Hironich is a young scholar who's just come out with a book, um, Once Loved, Always Loved, with the logic of a pocketastasis, who is trying to give some kind of analysis along these same kinds of ways. So I think that the, to me, what's interesting is that the, in the, in the, but I, I had a conversation or I listened to an episode with a, a conversation with Alaria Ramelli, the, the patristic scholar. And she said in the ancient world, the people, theologians did not think that they could do theology without philosophy, that they were, that, that those two disciplines were, we're so interrelated. And, and I think what I've noticed is that if you go to a seminary, you can do theology, but your theology is not necessarily, doesn't have to rigorously defend itself against philosophical coherence. You know, you, you can, that philosophical coherence is not some kind of absolute necessity. So that's what I like that combining theology and philosophy and then testing to see if you can come up with something that is theologically and philosophically coherent. And when you do that, I think the case for Christian universalism becomes extraordinarily powerful. Well, certainly John and I uh, think that the philosophical case for universalism um, uh, prevails um, uh, over over contrary uh, arguments. Um, so I think we'd be on board with you there. Um, our view on scripture is, uh, that scripture is, uh, ambiguous on the subject, uh, that, that, um, you can, you know, center certain non-universalist passages and, 
uh, interpret away the universalist ones uh, in light of the non-universalist passages, or you can do the reverse, uh, center the universalist passages, and there are plenty right, mm-hmm. in scripture, uh, and then uh, interpret the uh, non-universalist ones in light of the universalist passages. Uh, right. And, and so if your starting point is, you know, engaging with scripture and trying to construct a holistic interpretation, there's more than one way to go. Uh, but I think there's a strong philosophical case for the universalist path. Yeah. Well, the way I put it in my book is that just, you know, I'm, I'm used to just sort of talking with average people. It's not hard to run into somebody to a Christian and say, hey, do you think that salvation is by grace alone? And they'll say, well, I think so. I think I've heard that, you know, sola gratia. I think that's what the, that was in the Protestant Reformation, I think. And then if you ask them, you think that God gives grace to all, they'll say, well, yeah, God loves everybody, wants everybody to be saved. And uh, then if you ask them, well, do you think that uh, some will be lost forever? They'll say, yeah, well, the Bible teaches that some are going to be lost forever. Say, okay, well, you know, it'd be understandable if you reached those scriptural, you know, people have made scriptural arguments for all those positions. But the problem is it leads to a a problem of logical incoherence because you've got a, you've just got a logical problem there. And Mm -hmm. when I go through that exercise with people, sometimes people are very, they're, oh, I had never thought about it. You know, there were never, there was never a, a, a requirement that their theology be logically coherent. They could just put, you could just put together as many different claims as you wanted to from as many different positions. But I think it's the, I think adding in the necessity of a philosophical coherence with whatever it is that's being claimed and then learning how to think logically through the implications of your, your scriptural arguments or your theological arguments based upon scripture that you don't want to argue yourself scripturally into an incoherent position. Then you've got a, (laughs) then you've got a problem on your hands. So I really appreciate your work. Well, thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Yeah. Well, I hope that, I hope that uh, based upon this conversation that, that people will, uh, especially if they're interested in a really uh, profoundly well done um, treatment on the philosophical case for universalism, will uh, get a copy of God's Final Victory, a comparative philosophical case for universalism um, by Eric Ritan and John Cronin. And thank you, Eric, for your time today. I really appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.